the Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. Welcome to Startup Sensations, from both sides of the pond, with Belent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Belent Osman, from near enough London or just outside here in the UK. And Shelley Bays, a long distance from London here on the northern coast of California. Hello, Shelley. Hi, Belent. How are you today? Very good. Very good indeed. And actually, I'm looking forward to this particular episode because it's really about my favorite subject. Sales. Which is sales. <laughs> Absolutely. As you know, I've had a long career uh, in sales, certainly my corporate career. Uh, and of course, when you have a startup, then you don't stop selling either. Shelley, what, what's your perspective on sales in general? I've never been a salesperson in terms of that was my job description. But, you know, in reflecting about the concept of sales, we do sell in various ways in our careers um, in terms of persuading people to think about something the way that we'd like them to or to get funding for a project or whatever. So I guess I'd call myself a novice salesperson. So I'm really looking forward to learning a little more from a professional salesperson. You know him very well. You've worked with him in that capacity. Isn't that right? That is right. So our guest uh, this particular week is Scott Kaplan, and he is based uh, very close to Los Angeles in the US. And uh, I've known Scott for about five years. We first met when he was working for a private equity firm in LA. He was looking at my company and doing some due diligence. And he certainly quizzed me about our sales strategy, our go-to-market strategy. And uh, I remember actually he asking lots of really tough questions and trying to trip me up. And really, on the back of that, Scott and I kept in touch, and uh, he's helped me out with a few things that we did after that. He's an out-and-out salesperson, as you'll discover, Shelley. Looking forward to it. Scott Kaplan now joins us from uh, the Los Angeles area of the US. Uh, hi, Scott. We're delighted to have you on the show. How are you? I'm great. Hope you're both doing well also. Thank you. We are. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I'd like to kick off actually straight away with um, with our first question, which is really all about your, your experience in sales and marketing. You've held uh, various leadership positions uh, in high growth companies. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got started in the whole world of sales and go-to-market strategy? Sure. And I know, Boulant, from our experience, I know you know some of this uh, yourself, but uh, whenever I tell people that I started selling, I always use the phrase, I started professionally selling 25 years ago um, because I feel like I've been selling since age six uh, and those different dynamics. But really professionally selling, it was really right out of college for me. Uh, I was a theater major, loved theater, was a behind the scenes type of guy, lighting and sound. Uh, but I realized I didn't want to be spending my time traveling on a bus and sleeping on a bus and everything else like that. So I'm like, ah, let me go into something else. And uh, sales was always very natural for me. And so I went into a company that sold computer hardware and software, had a thousand, 100,000 plus products. You know, I was a mass kind of a seller out there in the marketplace. And that's where I really started to learn how to sell and learn how to not just sell generically, but the difference between, you know, business to consumer, business to business, 
you know, as you start doing more international things, how it just really expands that scope of sales. And so every time I've been in different roles, whether it's been in-house, whether it's been in private equity, whether it's now my own company as a sales consultant, helping those companies, you know, it's really about how do we go to market? What are the different motions and those different dynamics to really, you know, drive more scale, reproducibility, and, and really ensure the investments that we're making of time, money, resources, and people really get, you know, maximize the best possible ways. And so I love helping people. I've loved helping salespeople for years to just increase their capabilities. Fantastic. Uh, Scott, you're an author now. You've written a book called Quick Hit Sales Tips. Can I just ask what, what inspired you to write the book? And what are some of the key takeaways that you can share with us and our listeners today? Yeah, so the sales book has always been a, a passion project of mine. Ever since I was in business school, one of the goals I wrote down is I will write a sales book. You know, as I was going out on my own and having my own sales consulting company, um, I wanted to have a good leave behind with my clients that got trained, that got sales playbooks, that got, you know, different tools and resources and sales management training, et cetera, for me. I wanted to leave behind so they could be effective. They didn't have to keep coming back to me and giving me money just for the sake of giving me money. If they want to give me money because I need to help them with something, great. But I don't just want to suck my customers dry. It's not how I work from a consulting perspective. And so I want to make sure that I can have a leave behind so you can have longevity. And so I put a lot of the key you know, tactics that I want to go out there and use and leverage to really, again, go back to that previous point of I love helping people you know, with what they need to do. And so the, the title, Quick Hit Sales Tips, TIPS is actually an acronym. It's Tactics to Improve Professional Sellers. And so within that, I break down 10 tactics that almost all professional B2B sellers really need to go out there and have. You know, good meeting management, how do you set agendas and, and purpose of the meeting, but also expectations, right? So you can go out there and really make sure that you can have clear meeting control and drive some of those pieces. I talk about value messaging and questions and overcoming objections. And then it gets deeper with things that people really struggle with, with how do you really gain commitment? How do you really keep yourself positioned and build this business case throughout the sales process uh, and not just one at the end, but how do you build it with your champion and how do you get different decision makers and economic buyers and other people to buy off on things to try to keep that you know velocity of a sales. One thing that I hope people get is they can move through sales quicker. They can move through sales with higher value because they're not having to discount, right? Or they're seeing the value that what they provide so they can go and maximize that sale opportunity, right? They can be better on their forecasts and that timing to be more accurate with it and make sure they know really when things are going to come in versus things pushing, pushing, and pushing. Um, and so it's really that type of you know focus of the book. It's definitely not something I make money off of. It is 100% a loss leader for me. Uh, but it's something that's out there to really that I think uh, provide the uh, you know, ending, if you will, of, of an engagement that I have to make sure you can have that longevity. Now, with that, too, it's also a great book for anyone that's in sales or sales leadership to help you know go more continually with. So it's something you can use by itself yeah. to help you with those key tactics yeah. as you go through. In your experience, uh, what are some of the common mistakes that companies make when it comes to their sales and marketing? strategies and tactics and, and 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 what's the best way to avoid those mistakes i think one of the the things that i see most often is not understanding because sometimes the multiple steps to really drive adoption and execution um, they might have an idea 
and they might start to go forth with the idea. But knowing uh, and really thinking through the steps that are there, the resources, the effectiveness that are that are theirs, um, and how you need to bridge that gap um, sometimes is lacking. So I'll give an example. Sometimes people say, hey, Scott, come help us with our new hire training. We really want to go out there and fix it. And we have nothing in place or what we have in place isn't really good. And we want to hire all these salespeople. Can you come in here and fix it for us? Set it up, structure it. Okay, so the intent is there. They want to have it, but they want me to do it all, which I get. But there is a degree of handoff to the management team, for example. And so when it goes from training to management, we have to help bridge that gap. And so I'll outline a program that says, hey, I'm going to send these people outside of training. And here's the things I'm going to send them to you, like do a role play. And here's a score sheet. And I want you to really see how ready is this person. And I want to make sure you can really understand these key sales skills. And what a lot of managers do is they'll bypass it or they'll give me a score sheet back where they'll someone got a four out of five or a five out of five. And I look at the recording or, or anything like they didn't do anything along those lines. You don't really understand what we were trying to do. And it's that gap of bridging adoption um, that I feel you know, is a big gap. And kind of even going back to the book, all of my chapters in the book, and with a suggested rep action plan so they can adopt it and a manager coaching plan so they can enforce it. And so when we really try to drive the adoptability, knowing that's a big gap, that's exactly how I set up, you know, not just all my trainings. If you remember, there was action items and there was things that we had to go out there and do to drive that adoption. And I think, you know, I'm a persistent pain in the butt. I'll say it like that. I can vouch for that, Scott. I can vouch <laughs> right. for that. Uh, but it was also based off some of the commitments. Like, if this is what you want to do, then this is how we have to hit this and drive this and go from there. You know, sometimes I understand that people are are swamped and there's doing different things and those different dynamics. Um, so there's sometimes there's some very valid reasons as to why people can't. But it does speak to the fact that there are some gaps that you're going to have to overcome to drive adoption of anything new or anything that you want to change or anything that you want to implement. Mm. Absolutely. Right. You have to make sure it's not just the plan to get it to life, but how does that plan get, get adopted and institutionalized in a way that really helps get you the gains? So Scott, I, I have a question. I've, I've, uh, you know, spoken to lots and lots of salespeople and not being a salesperson myself. Um, I look at those people and some of them are great. Some of them are just what I would call a natural sales person. And, Others are salespeople, but maybe not instinctively uh, going at it the same way. Yeah. So how much in your opinion is, I mean, you said about yourself, you know, you were, you were a salesperson at the time you were six years old. So, you know, how much of it is the inherent nature of somebody versus the, the training and the methodology and the processes? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of, of both. I mean, someone can have good natural skills in something that's just part of their nature, whether you're an athlete, an actor, a salesperson, whatever the case may be. But you have to continue to refine those skills, get better at those skills, and kind of take them not just to the next level, but to the next levels of what you want to go out there and try to get to. And as you start to peel back, you know, that, you know, layers of the onion, what we really want to start getting into when you really look at someone, it's you can't classify them as a good seller. We have to get out of that generic term of labeling someone in their entirety as a good seller. So it's just like saying, 
Kobe Bryant was a great player, Michael Jordan, a great player, LeBron James, great player, or one of the greatest players that's out there. But there's also different things that they've had to continually work on to be able to be that great player. So for example, the specifics that we might look at would be how much time they spent dribbling two balls at one time and then practicing that skill of ball control. Or Michael Jordan used to talk about how he used to sit on the free throw line, you know, and just take free throw after free throw after free throw after free throw. And his motto of practicing till you can't do things wrong, you get it to that level so you can execute in the game is critical, right? So he broke down the multitude of different things that he needed to do from endurance, right? And his ability to do all these other different dynamics that I mentioned earlier too, to become a generalized great player. So it's about understanding some of those different nuances. So yes, out of the gate, I was personable. I understood different dynamics of how to uh, play to people's desires. That just kind of came natural to me, right? Well, how to get learned about that is asking better questions, asking more questions. And even one great sales rep uh, that I was working with at the time, when I was first in my first year of sales, he was the top seller of the company of about 500 people. And he sat across from me. And he popped his head up once and he looked up and goes, Scott, you ask great questions. There's only one problem. You always answer them. So <laughs> I learned I learned a trick that day of really biting my tongue, which I still you know use 20 plus years later. Hey, Scott, I also read that really good salespeople often start out in theater. Well, you know what? For me, it was great, not just for being a salesperson, but understanding the interior monologue, which was something I remember like, what are some of them really thinking and feeling as they're speaking? Like, okay, really understand your customer's feelings. What are they going through? And really kind of connect with that. Um, having dramatic pauses, being able to speak. I mean, these are things that have really helped me from a theater. Even though I was a lighting and sound guy, I had to take the acting and directing classes. Couldn't have been better to help me out. And I also think me waiting tables while I was going through college also a great sales preparatory job. You get people when they're hungry, they're in a good mood, they had kids going all over the place. It was also at a beer hall type of place, pizza and beer joint. So I had people who wanted to come in and have fun and watch sports. And I had people who come in just to feed my kids. So you have to understand those different dynamics of people. Read read the room, if you will, read the table and understand what do they want, how do they want it so that you can go out there and and figure out, figure out those things then and make it the best experience possible for them. We were chatting with somebody the other day who has worked, uh, as we say, on both sides of the pond, is British by uh, origin. And um, we, we were chatting about some of the differences that he observed uh, in the two business cultures. And one of the things he said, and I'm interested in your take on this, is he felt that the American way of... Um, sort of coming up with slogans or words that express things or names for things, you know, kind of exaggerated names, that the, U- the U.S. was much more facile at doing that. And in Britain, people were a little more um, careful about their language. So what's, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I've seen even within the U.S., I see tons of differences throughout Europe. You see tons of differences, not just language differences, right? But some of those cultural differences in terms of um, what is the appropriate way to message something, right? You're not, ultimately, you're talking about a message, right? How do you convey something um, through your words, through your actions, through your tonality, through the pace of what you talk and the intensity, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I think those things definitely, definitely have come out. I've had a lot of experiences and trials and trying to see what works in terms of when you do cold calling, how does it work differently? Not just in, you know, London or UK, but throughout different parts of Europe, South America, you know, Middle East, you know, Asian countries, Australian companies, the whole APAC region, right? So I've seen differences in the sense of cultural dynamics, but for the most part, I think they're minor tweaks to maybe how that message is or how that tonality is or how things need to work to be effective. Sometimes for me, being a very fast talker, right? And being someone who's very energized, I start moving too quick. And some of those different dynamics, when you have people of different uh, backgrounds, cultures, languages, you obviously have to slow down just from the language perspective. But there's also some differences, just as I've seen in, in the US of me going too quickly on the West Coast I means sometimes I got to slow down, right? Maybe have a little bit more of an emphasis behind things because of maybe some of the differences. So there's also those cultural aspects that come into play, regardless of if you're across a pond, right? Or you're north, you're south, you're east, you're west of those different dynamics. So I would I would just caution people to, one, don't let your your uh, what's in your head and your thought process say, oh, that won't work here. Well, no, it will work here. The question is, how do we make it work here? And I think people just uh, bypass things and say, well, that's, something they do in, in UK or they do that in Europe or they do that in the States. So that only works really in, in, you know, certain, you know, Asian cultures or in the Middle East. No, it pretty much will work, you know, a lot of different, in a lot of different areas. It's not about the what, it's about maybe the how and making sure that we can make sure, you know, how do we, we make the right adaptations to make that thing we're trying to do, that message, that value add, those questions, you know, how we want to be quote unquote an aggressive person from, you know, the New York or America. Well, don't, don't work here. We're not as aggressive over here in, in UK. Well, no, you are, but the tonality and the intensity isn't there, but you can still have quick timelines, effectiveness, want to push things through. And that's really what we're trying to do with being aggressive trying to push those things. But the way we might want to bring it up and how we do it will be different. So what's your view in terms of how things have moved on and changed and evolved from, let's say, at the turn of the century to to kind of today? Yeah, I think it's a lot more uh, dynamic today. Uh, the way in which we have to move and operate has really changed. I mean, when you and I started, there weren't team members like business development reps or sales development reps. You were your own BDR. You called your own leads. You worked your own deals, right? But now there's more tools and systems and there's uh, a lot more noise out there in the marketplace as well. It's, you know, it's much easier for people to find solutions and look for things, you know, on the web, et cetera, et cetera, because that stuff didn't exist back then, right? So as dynamics change in the marketplace, as customers can research more, right, the way in which we need to from, you know, engage that customer is very different, right? And we can do things now virtually. We can talk and see each other anytime we want without ever having to get on the plane. That didn't exist then. The way in which we do things has to also, you know, go through that, those changes as well, right? When we talk about, you know, integrations now or moving things forward, you're talking about software and integrations. The questions in which you ask, the dynamics in which you ask are going to be very different 
than what it was 25 years ago. There wasn't a cloud then, or wasn't people spread across, you know, so many geographic regions like there are now. And so how we need to go out there and, and make sure we know who's involved with things, how things get done, right? How does that company work? What are the different options? And those variables are now a lot greater. So it means we have to, we have to ask more questions. We have to make sure we understand those different environments. We have to build those use cases. We have to build the infrastructure to support those different types of dynamics. I mean, just think about how many different you know systems and tools they need integrations just to connect to different things. You have to get a lot more in depth and a lot more inquisitive. And it's this idea of also multi-party selling when you bring in you know subject matter experts like sales engineers or solution consultants. Right. When you bring in executives into deals, like how do we all play a part in making sure we understand those customers needs and convey our value to make sure that they pick us because we're the best solution for them and that we can then maximize that opportunity with that customer, provide the best value for them. So then we also get maximum dollars, maximum you know amount of references and, and resources and, and referrals from them to be able to help, you know, uh, our case as well and try to find that win win. So Scott, you know, so the customer has changed and the customer's expectations have changed. Absolutely. So sales people today starting out in sales, they're, I'm sure their view of the world is different as well. So how has that impacted how, quote unquote, management in a startup or a bigger organization compensates, incents, encourages, motivates that sales team, because that's probably changed as well. Well, certain things obviously have changed, uh, but certain things haven't. I mean, comp structures, you know, no cap commissions. I mean, these are things that will drive some of the core of a seller, not just financially, but also maybe some independence, right? They like to be more, more, more free. They like to have a lot of conversations with different people. What has changed might be, you know, as you go into sales, the role in which you go in, we might start off in different types of levels. So we might have like a, like I mentioned before, an SDR or BDR, those entry level type positions in sales, right? Which we maybe before was at a different type of company, but now you can still get into a large, you know, high throughput style organization. Again, whether it's a startup or it's a company that's been around for a long time or relevant, you can now get into those roles and you even have progression. Right. So these bigger companies will have different business units. So maybe it's, you know, SMB, small, medium business to mid market to enterprise or strategic level. So reps can even take that progression along those lines a little bit more to, to continue to advance and go from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what it is, it's, it's those developing those, those stepping stones to what's out there. And it's not just things like the BDR role, but there's these ancillary roles as well. If you're very technical, you can become a sales engineer, right? If you're customer centric, but don't necessarily feel like you want to have some of the pressure of sales or be seen as a quote unquote salesperson, we have significant uh, client success roles that we call them now before it was customer support and it was a different type of focus, right? <laughs> but it's also how do you work with them? How do you help develop them? And so there's a lot of similarities and sometimes client success has sales numbers tied to them as well, whether it's renewal numbers, expansion numbers, et cetera. Scott, I know that you uh, you mentor quite a few people clearly, and uh, you also help young salespeople become successful. What are some of the uh, the key things that you look out for in a young 
salesperson that they're just starting their career, they're, they're perhaps quite bright, they're very enthusiastic, they want to be successful, you know, they're driven, but they don't have the experience that you have. What is it that A, you look, you look out for as the key components for their future success and how do you help them uh, to become that successful person? Yeah, so what I look for might be more of a hiring question. How do I work with them to see that they're going to be successful? Might be on my coaching and development side of things. I mean, I think you mentioned some of the things from a hiring, like what is their characteristics, right? Are they eager, right? Are they want to go out there and, and leverage, you know, research on the web? If, if I want someone to be an SDR, BDR, for example, and do this entry-level cold calling and research of customers, well, I want to see, can they research me, right? Are they comfortable doing that? Are they showing some of those things that are out there? So if they're going to be interviewing for the company, did you research the company? Did you take a look at it? Are you being inquisitive, right? Are you giving up at the first little hit that I give you, or can you overcome a little bit of adversity? Cause that's what the role is going to be. <laughs> right. So I try to try to create in the interview, some of those types of environments so I can see how would someone act. So I have a kind of a, a process to really make people uncomfortable in an interview because that's real life. And I want to see how you're going to handle things when you're uncomfortable. Right. And so those different types of dynamics, and I've had some funny stories of how people have responded to that. Even real experienced sellers really lose their mind and just crumble in the middle of a, of a meeting just because they couldn't handle some of that adversity, the, the discomfort that was there. We're amongst friends here. You can share some of those funny stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you go through the interview and you, you typically you know, have you know some conversation at the beginning. And I typically warm people up the first 20, 30 minutes of an interview. I like to do an hour long interview. Right. And what they start to do is their defensives come down. They forget that they're interviewing. They think now we're friends because I've made some jokes. I've made some connections with them. So I ask a very simple question, Shelly, I'll just use you as my example. Don't feel you have to answer it, but I'll just go from there. Hey, so Shelly, if I was to go to your last boss, ask her or him, you know, three words or phrases to describe you, what, you know, what, would, what would they say? Mm -hmm. So I then let Shelly answer and kind of go from there. And then as soon as Shelly's done, okay, great. You know, if I was to go back to that, you know, again, same boss and ask her or him three words or phrases to say where you need to improve, what would they say? And then that trick I showed you before about biting my tongue, I really have to do it there. Yeah. People yeah. want to be saved, right? Yeah. They'll say, oh, well, that's a good question. I don't know. They'll start to look around. They'll start to fumble. That's okay. Can they keep engaged? Can they keep that their demeanor? Can they go from there? I've seen people start to tap their feet mm. you know, and lose lose their minds, go crazy. As a matter of fact, Bulent, it was in that sister company of New York that I mentioned earlier. Uh, after I met with you, someone was going for a sales leadership role, head of sales couldn't handle it. And then they do things like, oh, I got this, this thing. So maybe they'll give me one thing and then they'll give me something else. I'm like, well, isn't that the same as like the first one just said differently? Yeah. Okay. Well, I got that one. So that's one. What are the other two? If they're struggling, I'll say, well, it's okay. Take your time. No rush. And what I'll do is I'll, you know, look directly at them in, in the camera or I'm right there with them. Very calm demeanor on me. Right. And just kind of just, that's okay. Take your time. It's not an easy question. Like you said, take your time. Uh, I'll get back to the other two. No, we'll, we'll, we'll do it now. And then uh, it's funny because you'll see some wonderful dynamics. And I've also seen some people really take their time and really give me a good thoughtful answer. That's great. That's fantastic. That's how I can, they're not feeling pressure that I have to answer something real quick or have to BS my way through this type of question. And so I've seen some great responses with that. And I've even told people at the end of the interview if I like him, I even tell him why I did it. 
hey, Bulanta, Shelly, I really liked you, right? And the reason that I did this, I want to see how you handle things under pressure. And what I think I know about you is X, Y, and Z. But I want to make sure I'm directionally accurate. Can you please tell me if I'm right? Right? So under pressure, right, you're going to really look within yourself or if things aren't going right, you're going to look within yourself and you're going to go out there and find your own answers. You're going to kind of of put yourself off to the side because you're a bit of a perfectionist. And that means you're not going to come ask questions and you're not going to be comfortable coming to those questions. Is that a fair, fair assessment of you? They're like, oh my God, how did you figure that out in an interview question? <laughs> and Which is fine. I just need to know that because that means if I'm working with you, I need to make sure we have check-ins. And if I don't schedule those check-ins, I need you to make sure we schedule those check-ins. And then it's about positive feedback. Because you're exactly right if somebody just feels all they're getting are more things to work on, but not recognition of what they've accomplished or, or improved in, you know, so that's where, that's where the, the understanding human beings and personalities really, really comes in from making the sale, but also in coaching. Uh, agreed. So it, it's, it's a balance. I mean, sometimes it's a boot in the butt and sometimes it's, it's a pat on the back. Um, I much more prefer the, the pat on the back. Really? Um, but there's definitely some people, and I'll call this guy out by name because he won't care. <laughs> and I know, not you, not you, Vulan. Uh, there's a guy, coach, his name is Philip Stone, and I, and I was working with him. Um, you know, he was a BDR trying to make that progression to, to rep. And so I was coaching with him. He became that rep, started to grow. And as we was getting into these deals, especially the six-figure plus style deals, uh, I got on them pretty hard. I said, listen, I'm going back through things that I've already talked to you about three times. It's about you implementing this now. I've already given you the information. You got to implement it. So get off your ass and implement it. So he did. He appreciated the kick in the butt. He said it's what he needed and kind of go from there. Cool thing is that was about a year ago. He's now hit his quota three three quarters in a row, made President's Club last year. And so it's great to see a younger seller buy his first house. Mm-hmm. Go out there and start getting quota attainment, yeah. start getting the accolades of it. And, you know, before him closing a six-figure deal was was like incoherent. He didn't understand it. He didn't know as well. Uh, I think today now he has uh, seven or eight of them in the last year, which is just great, great for his progression and his ability now to, to move up into those future roles that he wants to have. Yeah, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Um, I think I already know the answer to this, but I'll ask anyway, which is what really frustrates you? What kind of really pisses you off with things? And and how do you handle that? Because, um, I, I, you know, I, I know you pretty well, so I, I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of you. So what really does upset you? Personally or professionally? Oh, a bit of both, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I said, it's only three of us on the show. So, so personally, uh, I don't like to feel like I've been wronged. Right. If I pay for a service, I pay for something, I feel I should get that. If someone doesn't treat me or my friends or my family right, you're probably going to hear my opinion. If I feel like you're bullshitting me, I can catch that pretty quick. But I also don't mind conflict. I'm the type of person who doesn't mind conflict uh, versus my wife who likes to avoid conflict. Right. So like if we're ever buying a car, she's like, I want nothing to do with it. That is your realm. <laughs> you go handle it. I'm going to tell you the car that I want. And I'll tell you what, and we'll agree on a price that we're comfortable with. But I don't want anywhere. I don't want to be anywhere near it. Or if I'm calling someone to fix a pro, you know, our internet services or anything else, she'll warn me before someone comes over. Hey, be nice. Like I'm always start off nice. All right. I just want to make sure that we get things corrected. Now, from a business perspective, what you probably would have guessed, uh, Bulant, is 
I don't need lip service. Don't tell me something just for the sake of telling it to me. Tell, tell me the truth. You really want to go out there and, and help me understand something, then just be honest with me. And then with that, if we agree to how we want to go forward, I'm going to move really quick, right? And I'm going to go out there and do those things. And I'm going to already think 16 layers deep because that's my core. And that's how I go out there and do some things. So sometimes it might feel to the other person uh, like I'm going too fast or I might be skipping steps or other things along those lines, or they're just not at that pace or ready to make that commitment level that they said they would do. I don't like it when we stall out just for the sake of stalling out. If we have a program that we're rolling out at some point in time, I need you to validate the information or I need you to, you know, I can deliver something, but you have to work on the adoption piece. And so I'm going to hold you accountable to those pieces and people don't like being held accountable. They like to hold others accountable, but they don't like to be held accountable themselves, especially if you do it in a public environment. Um, I've also had some some great companies that say, we are 100% okay with this. We appreciate that and we don't take it as a negative. So some of it's as a, a company culture. And so as a consultant, you come in, I try to understand the politics. And luckily, I'm fortunate. I typically come in at the board level, CEO, CRO level. So I come in at a pretty high level so I can have an understanding. I'm not just some consultant coming in. I'm helping you change the business. And to do that, sometimes you got to be the hard ass to help really push the business in the right direction. But I always make sure I'm aligned with where the business wants to go and align on those directions. And I get agreement with those items beforehand. So it's never coming off, you know, half-baked. There is alignment that's out there. I'm just trying to drive toward it. You know, people say, oh, great, here's a, a forecast call or anything else. I've taken many screen captures of, of you know, the executive and the head of sales level, and I'll kick it to them at the end of the quarter and say, this is what you said two months ago. I just, I sent it two months ago. I just put a time delay on it, right? Did you hit what you want? If not, we got to look into this. If so, right, what did you do to make sure that you can hit it, that you can repeat that same step? And I've had some people not respond to that. I've had some people say, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I've had some people say, thank you. And you're a complete a-hole in a smiley face. Plenty of tough love there. Absolutely. Fantastic. It's been a fascinating conversation, hasn't it, Shelley? Really delightful. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Well, Shelley, that was all about sales, wasn't it? My favorite subject. Um, actually, that was enjoyable for me, but also very instructional, wasn't it? Uh, yes. I always enjoy speaking with Scott. He's full of energy, full of interesting stories. What did you think, Shelley? Well, I thought it was very interesting to someone like me who does not consider oneself as a real salesperson, but he said, we all do sales. Yeah. That one hit home for me because I'm not a salesperson, but boy, I have sold in the past and I'm not sure I did it as well as I could have done <laughs> had I known Scott. <laughs> so, you know, you, you've had lots of um, personal experience working with Scott in this whole area of sales with your company and your career. So take us down a level in your observations and thinking about what he 
talked about and the steps that he talked about and the approach? Well, there was plenty of uh, good information there for sure. Um, And uh, I think there are a couple of things that struck me, which might be worth unpacking. He said about adoption and execution. So, you know, certainly my experience um, in sales, you can attend all sorts of sales classes, uh, learn all sorts of methodologies and understand really what the, the nuts and bolts are. But actually, what's really important is the execution of that. In other words, to internalize it and to make it a natural set of habits and actions that you can take on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. Certainly, my experience when, when I was working with Scott, that was the big thing. He, he really drove that home. He wanted the adoption levels to happen. And of course, that requires sales leadership to really embrace it and to push it and to make sure there are disciplines in place that these things that have just been learned are actually adopted and practiced every day, every week, every month. Um, and one of the other things he said, he only mentioned it briefly, and that's the ability to forecast sales. When they will drop, if they will drop, the probability of them closing, and then the value of that deal those important metrics, those are really difficult, I think. And they mark out the difference between a good salesperson and an elite salesperson. And the very best salespeople have an excellent track record in forecasting the value, the month it'll drop, the percentage. And of course, you know, the actual accuracy of their forecast is really critical. And the last thing I'd say just quickly is around the hiring process. It's actually one of the most high risk, I would say probably the most high risk hires any startup will make. Salespeople are expensive, especially the very good ones. And you can't afford too many of those when you're when you're a startup. And so taking the punt on picking the right salesperson or maybe a couple of salespeople is really very high risk. At the end of the day, the successful salespeople will post the numbers on the board. You know, it's about deals, it's about hitting your quota, it's about getting that revenue up for you and the company. And it's a results game. You know, he emphasized how important it is, as the point you're making, to really try and, in some ways, during the interview, make the person feel a little uncomfortable and observe how they react. Because sales is going to be uncomfortable at times. Yeah. And you have to be able to manage those situations. Yeah. And you know what I loved, which kind of ties into that, is his analogy to a sports coach where the sports coach, you know, he's not going to just one time observe you and tell you you swung that tennis racket really well. He's going to be on you every day, making sure you're out there, you're practicing, you're pushing yourself. That's the only way you get better at something. It isn't just a one-time achievement. It is a an ongoing continuum of learning. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. And that's it for another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Startup Sensations. And please send us an email. Get in touch with Shelley myself with any comments 
or suggestions that you may have. We always like to hear from you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the show. Looking forward to next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.